Old Testament reading this afternoon is from Job chapter 3. If you were here two weeks ago, you uh, recall we looked at chapters 1 and 2. And now uh, Job's lament in chapter 3. After seven days of silence in the presence of his friends, we read in Job chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born. The night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those, who, may those curse it, who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan, may the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish? When I came from the womb, why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who had filled their houses with silver. Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, and they're glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. And our New Testament reading is from Mark chapter 15, just two verses in Mark 15, verses 33 and 34. Considered Matthew's account of this a few weeks ago on Good Friday. Mark says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As far the reading of God's word. Beloved, next to uh, Psalm 88, which we sang a moment ago, uh, the words of Job chapter 3 are some of the darkest words in Scripture. Uh, Job longing for death, lamenting the day of his birth. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? He says, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? He longs for God to take his life. He is not at ease, it says at the end, nor is he quiet. He has no rest, for trouble comes. And the temptation, as we read these words, is the same temptation that Job's friends will have to analyze them in a cold and clinical way, to want to pick them apart and preach this passage as how not to respond when suffering comes. For instance, one commentator says, in this passage, Job is sinning with his lips. He has fallen from the high plateau of spirituality he once occupied. He says, this speech is neither thankful praise nor glad submission, but in it, we have the agitation of a troubled and gloomy spirit most powerfully expressed. He says, Job is sinning with his lips. But I wish to remind you of God's assessment of Job's speech at the end of the book. Job 42.7, God says to the friends, You have not spoken rightly of me as my servant Job has. Or the very first verse of the book, Job was blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil which God repeats in 1 verse 8 and then repeats again in 2 verse 3, almost as if he is anticipating the ways that we are going to read this lament unsympathetically. And so three times reminds us Job is a righteous man who James 5 verse 11 holds up for us as a model of patient perseverance in the midst of suffering. And Ezekiel 14 verse 14 includes in a list of the three most righteous men in the Old Testament. So forgive me if I cannot bring myself to agree with the words of that commentator who says that Job has here fallen from his high plateau of spirituality. No, beloved, God gives us this lament as he gives us Psalm 88 to show us another dimension of true spirituality. As he shows us the genuine experience of a man who is affirmed by God at the start of the book and affirmed by God again at the end. So look with me this afternoon at uh, three things that we see in this passage. First, Job's faithfulness. Second, Job's anguish. And third, Job's question. His faithfulness, his anguish, and his question. First, Job's faithfulness. D.A. Carson, in his book on suffering and evil, How Long, O Lord, is the title. He says, God does not blame us if in our suffering we frankly vent our despair and confess our loss of hope, our sense of futility, and our lamentation about life itself. 
He says one cannot read Job chapter 3 without recalling that God will later excoriate Job's miserable comforters, but insist that Job himself has said right things. Carson says, of course, it is possible in our grief and misery to say wrong things. Job's wife, for example, is not praised for her counsel to curse God and die. But within certain boundaries, it is far better to be frank about our grief, candid in our despair, and honest with our questions than to suppress them and wear a public front of fluffy piety. Job is not sin in this lament. You recall in uh, 1 verse 11, uh, Satan said, Take away all that he has, God, and he will curse you to your face. Or 2 verse 5, Touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. But Job has not done that. Nor has Job heeded the counsel of his wife, Curse God and die. That's the challenge. That's what Satan wants him to do, to curse God and take his life. But he doesn't. He does curse the day of his birth, verse 1. He curses the night of his conception, verse 6, but he does not curse God. He longs for death, verse 11, verse 16, again, verse 21, but he does not take his life. That's what he's been advised to do. She may have been tempted to do, but he recognizes that that is not an option for the believer. And so he holds fast his integrity and refuses to curse God and take his life. That's the whole challenge of the book. Will Job curse God to his face? The accuser, Satan, says yes. Does Job love God for something less than himself, his gifts? The accuser says yes. Thomas Merton said, if we love God for something less than himself, we cherish a desire that can fail us. And we run the risk of hating him if we do not get what we hope for. Of hating him if he does not give us health, wealth, and prosperity, if he doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we wish he would. And Satan says that's exactly what will happen. That having buried his ten children... Having lost his health, having lost his livelihood, having seen his glorious kingdom crumble to ruins, he will now give up on God because all he really loved was God's gifts. It was interested in God only insofar as those things remained intact. All of his years of following God were merely a mirage, treating God as a means to an end. That's the accuser's claim. But if there's one thing that is clear in this lament, it's that Job does not do that. William Henry Green, the old Princeton professor, said, Bruised as he is, hopeless of good, with but one wish, and this that he might die, Job does not reproach or revile his maker. The tempter has broken his spirit and crushed him to the ground, but has not succeeded in wresting from him his integrity and bringing him to forsake his God. Job is faithful, and that in all he says, he does not curse God and die. Beloved, one of the, the things that this teaches us is that remaining faithful to God in our suffering and crying out to him in anguish are not mutually exclusive. 
piety and pain can go together. That's what we said two weeks ago as, as we looked at, at the first two chapters of this book, remaining faithful to God in the midst of suffering and crying out to him in anguish are not mutually exclusive. There are some who, who would claim that they are. Uh, for instance, one biblical counselor calls discouragement in the face of suffering a sinful refusal to accept God's providence. He calls it rebelling against the wisdom of God's decrees, which needs to be confronted by the counselor who cannot for a moment excuse or countenance such rebellion against God. Refuses, or he refers to the responses people have to suffering as whining and self-pity. And includes Job as an example. I'm afraid we can sometimes fall into this same kind of thinking. Feeling guilty for grieving the loss of a loved one. Feeling as if, as if maybe we get a certain amount of time that we're allowed to feel sad, a, a sort of grace period, but then must get back to normal. And well-meaning friends can sometimes reinforce this, as we'll see with Job's friends. But this chapter and the whole lament tradition of which it is a part, along with the Psalms which we've already sung this afternoon, remind us that there is another dimension to true spirituality. Derek Thomas says, Plaintive songs in a minor key are thought dull and sometimes sub-Christian, but they are part of the biblical testimony as to how we sometimes feel. And to avoid facing the reality of pain distorts the nature of true faith. To avoid facing the reality of pain distorts the nature of faith. Which means that there is something for us to learn then from Job's anguish. So that's what we turn to next. First, Job's faithfulness. And then Job's anguish. You notice three movements in this chapter. In verses 1 through 10, we see Job's curse. In verses 13 to 19, we see his lament. And then in verses 20 to 26, we see his question. As you look at his curse, it says in verse 1 that he opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This is a sort of reverse happy birthday song. May the day perish on which I was born, and the night on which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it. May no light shine upon it. He asked for darkness and the shadow of death to claim it. And then verse 6 turns to the night of his conception. May darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year, nor come into the number of the months. May that night be barren, and may no joyful shout come into it. It is, one commentator says, a retrospective, contraceptive wish applied to his own existence. In the midst of his pain, he wishes he'd never been born. That Leviathan, that dragon-like symbol of chaos, verse 8, could somehow be roused to have prevented that day from ever having occurred, to take the stars of its morning and make them dark and never let them see the dawning of the day. And the reason he utters this imprecation, the reason he he wishes this curse is because that day did not shut up the doors of his mother's womb, preventing his birth or conception and thereby hiding sorrow from his eyes. That's the key to this whole curse, the sorrow that he longs to be hidden from his eyes. The pain 
of having just lost his children. The pain of seeing his kingdom in ruins, the pain of bodily sores and boils as he sits there in the ash heap alone. I think about how, just, just how alone Job is here. How even though the friends have been with him there for seven days, how utterly alone Job is. Think about how much time must have passed. It would have taken some time for Job's affliction to reach the ears of his friends. It would have taken some time for those friends to to consult together, to go and comfort Job, and then to travel there from Taman and from Shua and Nema. By the time these three men arrive, Job's disease has so altered his features that they do not recognize him. This is a man who has already suffered alone for weeks or perhaps months. And as much as his friends may mean well in coming to sit with him, must not the silence have been deafening? In fact, seven days of mourning symbolize in the Old Testament mourning for the dead. We see that in 1 Samuel 31 and Genesis 50. And so it may be that Job's friends are here mourning for him as one already dead. As if they call for the hearse and sit by Job with the coffin ready And waiting. And this sorrow which his eyes see and his ears hear, this deafening silence is too much to bear. And so he says, Lord, would that Leviathan had prevented the day of my birth and night of my conception from ever occurring so that this sorrow might be hidden from my eyes. Or if not that, verse 11 and following, he he laments the fact that he did not die at birth. If the womb of my mother could not have been closed up, then why did I not perish when I came from it? Why did the knees receive me, the breast that I should nurse? Beloved, this is a man who, who knows a grief and weight of sorrow that we cannot even begin to imagine. And he says, Would that I had been asleep and laid to rest from birth, verse 13, with those who have gone down to the grave. He wishes that he'd been like an infant, verse 16, who never saw the light, but gone to the place where the wicked cease from troubling, where the weary are at rest, where prisoners rest together and do not hear the voice of the oppressor, and the servant is free from his master. He wants to go to a place where there's no more suffering. That's what he longs for. That's the essence of his lament. He pronounces a a curse on his conception, birth, and existence and laments the fact that this retrospective, contraceptive wish is not fulfilled. It says, why? Verses 20 to 26, we, we see that word twice. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? In other words, why, Lord, are you prolonging my life when I long for death, but it does not come, and I search for it more than for hidden treasures, when I long for, for the pain and the sadness and, and the regret as I think about my life that was to cease? I would be glad, verse 22, to find my way to the grave. Don't be mistaken, this is not a man who is entertaining suicide, but a man who is asking God to take away his pain. He's not taking matters into his own hands, but he is lamenting the fact that that God has not given him over to death. And so again in verse 23, he asks, why? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, to a man whom God has hedged in? 
Notice he doesn't cease to believe in God, nor does he suggest that this is somehow outside of God's control, but what makes it so difficult for him to comprehend is that refusing to curse God and die, he maintains his faith in the fact that God is in control. And so he cries out like we often see in the Psalms in this uh, disorientation and confusion. Much like the psalmist in Psalm 42 who said that tears had become his bread. We, we see something of the same in verse 24. Where his sighing, or literally that word could be translated, his shrieking. This is the same word that's used of roaring lions. His shrieking comes in place of bread. He does not eat, but shrieks. And his groanings pour out like water. We think again of the psalmist in Psalm 69. We just sang, he's, he's weary with crying. He groans, he shrieks, he cries. This is Job, a man of sorrows whose greatest fear, whose worst nightmare has come upon him. He is not at ease, nor is he quiet. He has no rest, but troubles come. And he's honest about this. Another commentator says, the bourgeois etiquette that has so dominated the mores of Western Christendom is no guide to the rightness of Job's speech. Self-control is something quite different from not showing one's emotions. Job is no stoic, striving to be pure mind with no feeling. The Bible knows nothing of such dehumanizing philosophy. But he is a man bereaved, humiliated, and in pain, his skin festering, his nerves on fire. The book's test is not to see if Job can sit unmoved like a piece of wood, but if he'll curse God. And curse God he doesn't. He does cry out, why? But he does not curse God. And as you think about that question, why? which comes up not only twice in these closing verses, but six times throughout this lament, twice in verse 11, again in verse 12, verse 16, and then verse 20 and 26. Though, though this question, why, is not given a direct answer here in this chapter, if we keep on reading, and if we recognize, as William Henry Green said, that no book of the Bible stands apart by itself or can be fully understood if only studied separately and in isolation. If we, if we take this uh, chapter as part of a gradually unfolding revelation of God's ways with men and his plan of grace, then we see the answer to Job's question, why? that God did have a purpose in Job's suffering, that it wasn't for himself only. But to quote William Henry Green again, the old uh, Princeton professor, Job's sorrows came upon him, not for his sake merely, but for ours. A new lesson was about to be given to the world, and Job was the medium of God's instruction. It was to afford an occasion for giving these lessons to the world, which might lighten the sorrows, ease the burdens, and mitigate the trials of subsequent sufferers that these distresses were laid on Job. Thus he did, in a sense, suffer for our sakes. And by his wounds we are healed as a forerunner and type of that great prince of sufferers. There is not a weary sufferer in Christendom who is not indebted to this patriarch of us.
whose story here gives us a pattern which leads to the gospel. Green says, the sorrows of the man of Uz stand like the smitten rock in the desert at the headwaters of a great stream of consolation that flows with ever-deepening current until it issues in the boundless ocean of divine love and grace into which we are brought in the gospel. This book and this lament do not stand apart by themselves, nor can they be understood only if read in isolation, but are part of a gradually unfolding revelation as a link in a chain, a member in an organism where germs of truth are here exhibited that are destined to be expanded. A seed that is going to bud into a flower, lines of thought here are started, which when consistently followed lead to the gospel. Green says, if we would understand this book aright, we must not only, stand what, only understand what it is, but to what it leads. And it leads us to the cross of Mark 15, where another sufferer, afflicted and alone, cried out to God in the darkness, but did not curse him, yet maintained his integrity. And so because Job's dark night of the soul foreshadows the darkness of the cross, there is within it a ray of hope. There is within it an answer to his why that is found in the man of sorrows himself who would descend into Job's abyss of misery and be plunged into deepest hell so that in our suffering we might have an answer or we might have our sorrows lightened. We might have our burdens ease as we look upon the one who suffered for our sakes. Beloved, this lament in chapter 3 is part of, of a drama given to us, a, a provisional picture, a little glimpse of how God would bring about the promised victory of Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman would be bruised and afflicted and yet crush the head of the serpent and silence his accusations. And as C.J. Williams, a professor at the Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh, uh, points out if, if this is the central point of the book, then it's even more striking when we consider the probability of a patriarchal setting for Job's life. In other words, he, he was likely a contemporary of, of the patriarchs in Genesis. His story may in fact be God's first expansion on the gospel promise of Genesis 3, illustrating through typology how that promise would come to pass through the faithful suffering of his servant who would cry out to God with loud shrieks of anguish, Hebrews 5, who would come before God in the garden and say, Father, I do not want to go down this road. Is there any other way? who would enter into that darkness that is mentioned five times in Job 3 as the cross would be shrouded with darkness and and would take that word, why, on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ knows the experience of Job 3 and therefore can sympathize with you in every smaller suffering in the contemplations of and even longings for death that we see in this chapter in the pain of physical torment and the bereavement of children and the pain that even a day like today or a passage like this may bring up. Some of you have children who have never seen the light of day. So if you have pains and hurts that, that this passage and this, this day have brought up, children have wandered from the faith, these pains, 
These hurts, Christ knows. The book of Job is given to prophesy in picture form just how deep he will descend into the pit of suffering, not only so that we might see how God defeats the enemy, but also that we might see how as he continues to crush him underneath our feet as we suffer faithfully, we have a sympathetic high priest who is not untouched by the feelings of our infirmities but has entered into this darkness, gives you permission to lament when you feel it too, and enables you by his spirit to hold fast your integrity in the midst of it. Look to Christ. Look to him in the midst of your pain. Look to him in the midst of your sorrow. Look to him as the fulfillment of this pattern begun in Job 3, the man of sorrows, and come to him and find rest. Amen. Our Father, in those last words of Job's lament, he longs for rest. Lord, we confess the only place that rest may be found is in the Christ who invited us into that rest in our call to worship and invites us into it again now. Lord, I pray for any here who know something of the pain of this chapter, even a small fraction of it. Any here who have ever found themselves longing for death, Any here for whom Job's dark, contraceptive wish brings up hurts and pains? Any here for whom a day like today brings up hurts and pains? Lord, let the sorrows of the man of us and the sorrows of the man to whom he points be for them, be for us, balm to the soul. Lord, any here who have never confessed faith in this man of sorrows and found that rest for which verse 26 longs, give them and give us all a vision of of the paradoxical glory of the man of sorrows who bearing shame and scoffing rude in our place condemned he stood, who entered into hellish anguish for us. Lord, help us now as we sing of his grace. I pray in Jesus' name.